The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The history of Star Wars is the history of cinema. For everything you like about Star Wars, there is at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on Episode Zero. to episode zero the star wars podcast where we don't really talk about star wars <gasps> my name is william bibiani i am a critic everybody calls me bibs my name is whitney seibold i too am a film critic uh human cyborg relations yeah that was All the company right. that made uh, c-3po before george lucas decided that anakin skywalker invented c-3po Oh, that was a company? Human Cyborg Relations? Yeah, was... in, the, uh, in the cartoon Droids, they confirmed the Human Cyborg Relations oh, that's was right. like yeah, the yeah. droid-making company that made C-3PO. And but, then uh, that no. got downgrated to, I guess, just like a, a, a mission statement. Like, well, that's it, what I do. Could... I do Human Cyborg Relations. The, yeah, that, that could be your job description. It doesn't necessarily yeah. have to be a company. I, I actually always assumed it was a job description. Yeah, like, that's what it sounds like. Like, hey, my name is William Bibiani, film critic. Hi, I'm C-3PO, Human Cyborg Relations. Like, mm-hmm. okay... But, but the, yeah, in the cartoon it, 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 that we reviewed on Cancel Too Soon, mm. they revealed that that was actually the name of the company. Human Cyborg Relations. And then they decided to pretend that part didn't happen, even though a lot of stuff in the droids cartoon is still canon. Uh, or at the very uh, least, yeah. never disputed away from canon. Yeah. yeah. I, I like to think that the Great Heap is somewhere in the Star Wars universe Well, still. like, characters and actually, like, uh, vehicle designs and like and like a lot of things ended up crossing over from the droids cartoon mm. into the prequels. So they're kind of still canon and it's weird that they're completely unavailable because that show is pretty good. It, it is a pretty good show. Yeah, I, I agree. Better than Ewoks, the show. Uh, <laughs> but in any case, we are here uh, on this podcast. This podcast exists to chronicle the prehistory of Star Wars, to talk about the various films and media that inspired Star Wars, because what is Star Wars if not this incredibly grand pastiche of all of the culture, entertainment, movies, sci-fi, fantasy that came before it? That's one of the things that made Star Wars so powerful, Mm -hmm. was that it felt like a distillation of popular culture up until that time, at the very least various forms of popular culture, if not every single one of them. So if you look backwards at film history through the lens of Star Wars, you're going to see a lot of fascinating things. And one of the films that we've been kind of holding on to, we probably could have started with this, mm-hmm. uh, is one of the most influential science fiction films of all time. And it, one of the best. Uh, arguably one of the best films of all time. Rewatching it, there are a few things that I maybe not take issue with, but not my favorite things. 
Okay. But we'll talk about that. And it turns out the director actually shared some of my concerns, which I found out through <laughs> research. So that's interesting. So uh, let's talk about Fritz Long's absolutely breathtaking, ahead of its time sci fi masterpiece, Metropolis, which is a silent film, so we have no clip. Dun, 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 dun. Metropolis is uh, frigging great. Mm. Uh, it's. Not only one of the, the best science fiction movies, I think it might be one of my favorite science fiction movies. Uh, it's one of the most overpowering science fiction yeah, movies. Like, it, you never really think, like get completely immersed in it. You're always sort of looking at it like, what an effect fucking accomplishment mm. like what an incredible universe they created especially with 1927 visual effects set pieces the limitations of the medium yeah, they, they used a lot of uh, really amazing photographic effects they used really amazing makeup effects some awesome costumes they built a, an entire city of miniatures that were actually fully functional they had like moving cars and planes and stuff so uh yeah this I wish I could have been there, like, on the set just to see that thing working in person. It took 17 months to shoot this movie. I, I believe it. That's a really long production. Mm. That's, like, as long as it took to shoot the Lord of the Rings trilogy, not cutting reshoots. <laughs> yeah. That's nuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, and it tells us a really wonderful science fiction political allegory about how... The uh, the rich people, the upper classes, live in Metropolis, this great glimmering city. But before we even see the glory shots of the city, we're introduced to the things that keep it operational, which is a horrendous, torturous, almost like Emil Zola-like uh, labyrinth of misery underneath, mm. where all the laborers are keeping the machines running. Right, so you've got... Thousands, if not millions of laborers who are working in, in just absolute drudgery, just trudging from machine to machine. The machines are not designed very well, and they're physically like painful to keep running. Mm -hmm. And why are they keeping all these machines running? We cut upstairs to Metropolis, this gorgeous art deco cityscape full of incredible angles and buildings made of light mm -hmm. and... A bunch of rich kids are fucking around and having sex. Yeah, they're they're doing fun Olympic games and chasing each other around gardens and doing these really s fun sexist things. Yeah, where they're like measuring women so that they'd be just right so the rich boys can play with them. Yeah. So uh, that is that. Is, these are the habits that the laborers underground are working to sustain. Yeah. There is nothing savory about this setup. No, it's all everything beautiful about it is built upon. Uh, misery and uh, oppression. Mm. Now, there's a lot there, isn't there? That's a very political premise for a sci-fi mm. story. This it's, is not one very... of those things that's like, oh, this is going to be a fun time. Like, no, mm. you will have fun because there's amazing stuff in this movie. But right off the bat, we're telling you right now that this is a work of political fiction. And we're yeah, going to yeah. talk about different, mostly class issues. Um, it's, and it's we'll truly, talk a lot uh, about sort of the theme that uh, Fritz Long really sort of sticks to yeah, it's, throughout and, the film. But. And it's surely uh, inspired by The Time Machine, H.G. Mm. Uh, Wells' book from 1890-something? Uh, uh, yeah, 1890-X. 1895, I think. And um, Which is uh, about a time travel, travels into the distant future, finds that humanity has essentially take that premise from Metropolis and evolve it millions of years, <clears> where <throat> there's a sort of rich dumb creatures that are living above ground in luxury and they just sort of eat fruit and don't care about anything mm -hmm. and then underground are the morlocks who are uh as it turns out 
keeping them there so they're they can pull them underground and eat them. They yeah. use the Eloy for the, food. The only thing mm. that the rich and uh, the uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for here? The 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 rich the, and, and the bourgeois, the, the, the bourgeois. The only thing yeah. that the rich and bourgeois are good for mm-hmm. is for feeding the poor, oh. which is a, a, a fun inversion. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting inversion. Metropolis is a bit, bit more is a, isn't quite as ironic as that. Um, but basically, the idea is this: it's Metropolis. The date in the future is not clear. Different versions of the film have been released over the years. It originally premiered, and it was like three hours long. Uh, that version was deemed too long, and so they cut a lot of it, and a lot mm-hmm. of footage went missing over the years. And we still don't have the complete version, but over the years we found most of it. In fact, uh, in the mid two thousands, they found a huge store of footage of Metropolis in Argentina, Argentina yeah. of all places, and th- and I love these kinds of stories, like uh, when you hear that samurai cop was like in a west german castle somewhere right. and that's the, the thing that brought it back from oh, no, the dead. The, my favorite was uh, the passion of joan of arc which mm. is um carl dreyer it, yeah. well it's Carl dreyer i'm just like it's one of the most like sort of signature uh achievements in silent cinema mm. uh and it's about the uh, the passion of the, joan of arc yeah, yeah. yeah the persecution of joan of arc and uh that was was it lost and then they found it in a mental institution or was it just like it was it just incomplete but yeah they found the foot this missing footage of this classic film in a in a like a the the attic of a mental institution which is an interesting place to find it i'm sure we can all agree that's not the first place you think to look is it so the the footage they found was restored as best as they could uh even though it was like scratched and damaged pretty badly but Mm. they were able to restore everything they could they went back to the original studio notes and the original Mm -hmm. screenplay and they tried to find the original intertitles Mm -hmm. as they were written and uh finally i think it was in 2012 when was the the complete metropolis uh let me see if i can find that the complete uh, 2010 2010 in 2010 they finally put all of those things together, restored as many elements as we possibly had, and they released something called The Complete Metropolis, which you can actually now find pretty easily. Yeah. Uh, It's on the Criterion Collection right now, um, or the Criterion Channel Channel, as well. Um, It's also just free on YouTube. I don't know why. Well, the movie is is in the public domain, I think, but like... Well, I don't think the complete version is. I think uh, it's owned by Kino, but... uh, Well, in any any case, back to my point, uh, it's been released many times over the years, and some of them had different intertitles, and depending on the version, the year in which Metropolis takes place is either not mentioned, or it's supposed to be like the year 2000, or sometimes it's the year 3000, but it's supposed to be the distant future. Mm. In which, if we keep going on the way we are now, and again, this movie was made in the 1920s, post the Industrial Revolution, uh, it's in the post-World War One, pre-World War Two, in which uh, Germany was going through a lot of upheavals uh, for, you know, the better part of two decades, uh, until World War Two actually broke out. Um, so this was a turbulent time, and a time of great, you know, sort of massive social adjustment Mm. and metropolis is in many respects a response to the anxieties of the era uh it was based on a novel people don't usually talk about by thea von harbo uh who i believe was married to fritz lang and then they got a divorce after she joined the nazi party and then fritz lang fled the country Mm. um so yeah that's that's a bad breakup (laughs) (laughs) that's real bad (laughs) It's, can you imagine Fritz Lang in a bar telling the story? Yeah, and 
And then she became a Nazi. Clang. It takes a shot. Yeah. Oof. Um, but the plot so of I Ma- came to America and made some amazing noir movies. Yeah. Uh, the plot of Metropolis is when he set it up. Mm. Uh, and it's a pretty simple plot, but there's a lot of like nuance in terms of the iconography that's being used. It's told in very broad strokes. Um, the son of the man who runs Metropolis. Mm. Uh, his name is, uh, is Joe Frederson is the, Yo, the father. Yeah. Yo, Joe Frederson. Mm. Uh, is the father he he runs Metropolis and then Freighter, Freighter Freighterson, mm. <laughs> uh, he's he's his young impressionable son who at the start of the film is kind of the golden boy, mm. you know, winning all the Olympic events, having sex with all the ladies, and then kind of just breaking into their reverie. Uh, a woman it's Maria named Maria, played by really one of the great sci-fi performances of the entire genre bridget helm uh bridget helm uh is known for this she did work for a while Mm -hmm. uh i was just looking up some of her story she led a very interesting life we'll talk about her in a minute because she's very fascinating Mm but uh bridget helm plays a young woman named maria who we find out has been sort of leading these rallies underground with all of the working class uh, in order to tell them that you know this, the way civilization is going right now cannot sustain itself, and mm. she tells stories about the Tower of Babel and how it eventually fell because, well, Uh-oh. actually hubris. But according to this film, the reason the Tower of Babel fell mm. was because the rich people who owned all of the workers, uh, uh, and Not the wor- mistreated the workers so badly that they built the tower badly. Yeah, and then the workers themselves never really had a good like pipeline up to the leaders. So really, everyone was kind of at fault. And what we really needed was a mediator. Well, and what I appreciate though is that reinterpretation of the Babylon story uh, via through the lens of class. Mm-hmm. Because who is building the Tower of Babel? It's not the citizens of Babylon. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's. It's yeah, it's like the the laborers, it's slaves yeah. who are building it essentially. So yeah. this idea that you know this this huge there's actually a, a numerous interpretations of that story. It's not very clear in the Bible itself, yeah, uh, because it's a parable. And uh, the idea of class consciousness being the underpinning metaphor of the Babylon myth is, I think, a very fascinating read, and I think it, it's important. It's a, a completely legit read for something like Metropolis. I, I agree it's a legit mm. read, but here's the thing that the movie really hammers home, and this mm. is the ultimate takeaway that the movie wants you to take away, and we'll talk a bit about how they tell that story. And they repeat it multiple times, and even like the interstitial title cards make the text way bigger just to make sure you get it. <laughs> the mediator between the head... And the hands with sidebar, sidebar, the head being the rich and smart Mm. and the hands being the poor and and destitute must be the heart. Mm. Now, there is the the idea that you're all part of a a grander being rather Mm -hmm. than these separate parts that are taking that are exploiting one another. And listen, Mm. there's something to be said for that. And certainly basically you can look at this entire movie as uh, this is why we need unions like, you can kind of argue that yeah. like there need to be like more of a balance between different aspects of society however there's it's also kind of a naive sentiment in a lot of ways because they're well, basically saying look we need the rich and smart to lead the working class but and the working class are just and they're all part of like the same system the head's mm-hmm. gonna be up here that's the that's really important 
Hands are going to be down here. They're not that smart. And uh, what we need is someone who will be the rich white kid to act as a mediator between mm. the two of them. And then everything's going to be okay, right? And I'm like, that's not... That's really naive. Well, it's That's very simplistic. It's it, it seems naive to us because we're living in a world that followed World War Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, Metropolis was made in 1927. And Great. this was a time when a lot of politicians and a lot of just popular politi- political discussion was skewing platonic. That is the idea of the Republic with the benevolent philosopher king is the one in charge. Yeah. The idea that those in charge are actually working for the best for their people. Mm. And of course, ever World War II was such a violation of these ideas. By keep in mind in the early 20th century, uh in sen- in sense of uh, the way philosophy had been evolving, nations uh and people all were under the assumption that we had kind of come to the conclusion of everything that yeah. We'd gone through the Enlightenment. Yeah. We'd gone through uh, an industrial revo- revolution, and we had reached a, a political point where we felt that we had tried every kind of political system we could think of, and we finally found the perfect ones. And we're going to actually go into this exhilarating experimental phase where we're just going to keep on improving. And when World War II broke out, we learned that it was a violation of every single one of those things we were taking for granted. Science was used to create the A-bomb now. Mm. Uh, and now we can use uh, sciences and machines to literally wipe out millions of people with the push of a button. Yeah. Uh, and politics had led to this really severe kind of resentment and nationalism that led to the rise of the Nazi party in Germany and caused mm. you know the wipeout of most of the world. Right. Uh, so by the time we reached the end of World War II, we realized that the idealism about politics that we see in Metropolis mm-hmm. was naive. And indeed, even Fritz Lang agrees with that. Yeah. Uh, Fritz Lang, uh, uh, first off, it's, it's worth noting, uh, Joseph, uh, Joseph Goebbels loved this movie. Absolutely. Like really thought they yeah, thought yeah. because it's easy because it's so it's such a parable to sort of extract the lesson you want to take from it, which it could well, be if, argued if, is, is an issue and if, if you're if, trying to make a point. And if Goebbels was arguing that he and the Nazi Party were of the rabble exactly. that needed which to were. rise up, which they were, yeah, That's what, and, that was and the take over sort of the, yeah. the corrupt government that was currently in place, mm-hmm. then yeah, that was the narrative that they were trying to sell, whether or not it was accurate, and that's um, you know. Also, like Nietzsche was mixed in there too. Nietzsche yeah. told, like, preached a philosophy of uh, personal strength and being essentially uh, not just as as good as you can be, but cut out all the other people who are keeping you from realizing your, your full potential. It's a very individualist philosophy. Kind of hate it. Yeah. Uh, uh, and yet, I know it really well. Uh, <laughs> well, it comes up a lot. Yeah. But uh, uh, but yeah, they took that sort of to mean well, that means human beings can be exceptional, and there are people who are better than others, mm-hmm. and that fed directly into this idea of the master race. Yeah. Which is a misinterpretation of Nietzsche. Yeah. And also but, evil. And, uh, and, and also just, led to things morally like and genocide. Uh, morally and ethically mm. bad. Um, but uh, in any case, towards the end of his uh, uh, mm. life, Fritz Long uh, was interviewed about the film. Uh, and he talked about how the main thesis was Von Harbo's. Mm. Uh, but he does claim about 50% responsibility for it because he made the movie. Mm. Uh, and he said, quote, I was not so politically minded in those days as I am now. You cannot make a social conscious picture in which you say that the intermediary between the head and the brain is the heart. Mm. Or the hand and the brain is the heart. I mean, that's a fairy tale, definitely. But I was very interested in machines. Anyway, I didn't like the picture. Thought it was silly and stupid. 
<laughs> but then eventually he saw that like where like you know civilization has gone sort of technologically and he's just like yeah we I did we did kind of see a lot of this coming in the movie so he ended up with sort of mixed feelings about it mm. um so it's one of those things where it's, it comes at a flashpoint and maybe it's hard to say like whether the message that your movie is trying to tell is actually good bad inspiring to the right people mm. you know being misinterpreted or interpreted you know vaguely like it's it's really difficult to to figure out like the impact your movie is going to have but it Mm. did have a massive impact on science fiction because in addition to doing this incredible futuristic cityscapes which you can see in any movie that takes place in the distant future now it's basically just a big ripoff of what metropolis did and this is everything from blade runner to the fifth element and uh, not so much in the original Star Wars trilogy but once you get to the prequels and we spend a lot of time on the planet Coruscant yeah it's all over there it's just one giant just well, densely packed New York City built on top of another New York City and built on top a, of another New York City with yeah, cars they, flying around everywhere that's metropolis to a T yeah the, the idea of uh Coruscant was that the entire planet was one gigantic city. Yeah. Like there's no planes or anything else. It's just yeah. all urban urban. It's basically uh, Metropolis the planet. Yeah. Uh and, and yeah, there's until, Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I think it was the advent of CGI that allowed filmmakers to start to do that again. I remember Roger well, Blade Runner did do it, but it was like this big yeah. extensive production I didn't and, make uh, its money back. Ro- Roger Ebert was a sucker for this sort of thing. Whenever yeah. somebody did like a big fake cityscape, Roger Ebert always wrote a really positive yeah. review. It's Dark like, City was his number one movie of the year, that yeah, kind of thing. Uh, yeah, Dick Tracy, he really yeah, I think he gave a four star review to Dick yeah. Tracy because there's like all these comic book shots of these fake cityscapes with oh, lights it's behind so them. Damn gorgeous, it looks too. really great. That too. movie is one of the best looking comic book movies, yeah. period. It's so damn Everyone good. says it's a Batman ripoff, and it is, but it's still good. It's not really uh, Batman ripoff, it just ripped off the style, but like, mm. yeah. I but mean, it's great. It, it wouldn't have existed without the success of Batman, that's, that's my point. That's fair, yeah. Um, but in any case, uh, so definitely stylistically, it was hugely influential. Mm. Uh, this film was filmed by, was it uh, Carl Freund? Carl Freund was the photographer. Carl Freund was an incredibly influential Photographer Whitney, tell us a little bit about Carl Freund. Okay, well, Carl Freund, I I knew Carl Freund as for his work as a director because he directed The Mummy. Yeah. Uh, I love The Mummy. I love all those old Universal monster films. It turns out he was a hugely influential photographer as well. He did Metropolis, and I didn't learn this until I was actually doing research on Metropolis. But Carl Freund ended up going to Hollywood and ended up falling in with Lucy Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz mm-hmm. when they were working on I Love Lucy, and it turns out. He was the one who pioneered that uh, flat, even sitcom lighting that you know from sitcoms to this very day. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, we think of it as very boring because it's, you know, 70-year-old technique. But when you have a little tiny TV in the 1950s, clarity... black and white. And it's a black and white TV, clarity is key. So he came up with this nice, wide, even way to light and shoot a sitcom uh, that is kind of like live theater, but is dynamic enough for television where we can see everything. Yeah. It was a brilliant innovation and I won't, uh, I won't scoff at it again. No, (laughs) because somebody had to think of that. Sometimes we take things for granted. Like we're so used to something that we forget the reason why it was invented in the first place. And Mm -hmm. the idea that the cinematographer behind Metropolis, one of the most striking motion pictures ever visualized Mm -hmm. also invented sitcom lighting. 
yeah. is really funny to me. <laughs> That's really funny. Let's well, and, be honest and here. We've had conversations about this before, but when you go down the, the filmographies of famous cinematographers, mm-hmm. uh, often they'll end their careers on some of their best work, but often not. They're, yeah. they're a lot like big film acting legends as well. Their best mm. work is rarely at the end of their career. Yeah. So, yeah, you look at somebody like Dean Cundy, that's like the prime example, who did things like Back to the Future and Jurassic Park and Halloween. and mm-hmm. After and, getting his start in, like, Grindhouse crap. Yeah, and he, and he did yeah. Grindhouse crap, but, like, I mean, Halloween is sort of the bridge between exactly. those. Exactly. Halloween was such a big, independent yeah. movie that all of a sudden, like, that movie shot really good, let's give him some work. And then yeah, he got, and he, and he got, work. got yeah. some work, and he's shooting Jurassic Park, and then you fast forward to the, the 2010s, and he's shooting stuff like Jack and Jill, yeah. which is doesn't look good. But was Jack and Jill him? Yeah. Okay. I, Dean, thought, Dean, I knew it was someone like Dean know. Cundy shot Jack and. Well, Will. that's the thing with cinematographers, though, mm. is that just, just go because, where the work is. Well, or... you go where the work is, and filmmakers want different things, and it's not a cinematographer's job to bring a distinct style mm. to every single thing that they do. Sometimes cinematographers are hired because they're good at a style, mm. and so they end up making a lot of films in a similar vein. But sometimes cinemato- I've, I've talked to cinematographers who will have like one weird film on their resume and it's like one of their favorite things. I interviewed Janusz Kaminski. <laughs> I, I know what you're about to cite yeah, here Janusz, too. Janusz Kaminski is the cinematographer that Steven Spielberg has worked with on every single film since Schindler's List. And you'll notice that with Steven Spielberg, he has a certain style. He has a certain way that Spielberg likes things shot. He likes windows blown out so that you can't see what's like going on like past the window and they're shooting in these giant streams of light. Mm-hmm. Everything kind of looks like it's being shot at the end of the day. And <laughs> which is famously called the magic hour. Well, not but magic hour is a very specific time at the end of the mm-hmm. day, but basically yes. Uh and they worked well together. They like each other. They and, but you can always tell a Janusz Kaminski Spielberg film because it looked very different from pre Janusz Kaminski Spielberg films mm-hmm. and he's very famous for this now. However, those aren't the only films he's ever done, and he also did the Vanilla Ice movie Cool as Ice. <laughs> and if you've ever Wh- seen Which cool is as- garbage, by the oh, way. Oh, oh, it's really bad. However, it's also fascinating. It is a re- basically they made this movie, it was all about Vanilla Ice, mm. who, if you're too young to remember, was a white rapper in the late 80s, very early 90s. He was big for a couple of years. Uh, n- not just big. Let, uh, let's, no, let's, he was let's, huge. Let's, yeah, let's not downplay no. how big he actually he was, got. He was a gigantic, huge music megastar. Ice Ice Baby was the first number one rap single in history. No shit. I did not I, know I'm that. I'm not kidding. Yeah. That's embarrassing. But okay. <laughs> I, anyway, he was a big, 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 big oh. star, and the, the, you know, the record companies were all over him, and they were putting him front and center everywhere, and he was wearing all of these, like, really trendy new fashion mm. things and so they were like okay listen he's a huge star let's put him in a movie we do that sometimes and so they did and they decided to make a movie in which he not only starred but he played a fictionalized version of his over-the-top pop persona mm, so giant hair loud yeah. clothing just yeah. that's the way he lived and it was basically just designed to be as quote cool unquote as it could possibly be in 1991. One, 91 that came out. Yeah. 1991 was a very specific particular time for the word cool. <laughs> it's I, I, aged really bad. I, I encourage you to watch Cool as Ice, not because it's good, just because it is like one of the perfect time capsules of the time. Yeah. If you want to know what shit was like in 1991, Cool as Ice is a really, really good example. There's nothing classical about it. It's trying to be as contemporary mm. as it possibly can. Except for the photography. <laughs> Except, well, the photography is completely 
outlandish and insane and it's full of like fast motion bizarre color schemes weird angles like it's just it's a simple stupid it's basically the wild one Mm. where vanilla ice is riding his cool motorcycle with his cool motorcycle friends through like midtown america you know just you know generic'sburg pennsylvania or the fuck they are i actually forgot what state it was i don't think it's really important but Please don't let that be a Shmodan question. Uh, <laughs> In what city does Cool as Ice I'm, take place? I'm going to challenge the shit out of that question. Like, no one cares. That's it went from trivia to trivial. But in any case, the whole point is it's supposed to be this Capra-esque sort of suburban town. Mm. And he comes in and everyone's just he's, like, whoa, 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 a rapper with a motorcycle? He's the keep, bad guy. Keep him away from our daughter. And so he falls in love with the daughter and basically stalks her and treats her like shit. And of course, she falls in love with him, even though she's dating like the cool rich guy who, of course, is a big old asshole and he tries to mm. fight cool as ice which i prefer to think of as his name <laughs> and uh listen it's cool. a, the, the plot is junk the cool plot is junk, ice. but it's an incredibly weird visual movie and it looks with the exception of like some of like the window lighting mm. which kaminsky just loves it doesn't look like any of his other movies even remotely and i interviewed janish kaminsky about this and he was like yeah what was it like doing cool as ice that's that, that kind of the stands out in your resume and he was just like that movie was great. Like I got to do anything I wanted on that movie. They just basically like make it look cool. I'm like, cool. I'll do whatever the hell I want. And so that was just like pure unfettered creativity from a cinematographer. And it doesn't work at all, but it's fascinating to watch. It's a wonder- wonderful shot of the, the plume of steam out of the, the lead actress's mouth. I have no idea how uh, we got on this subject. We were talking about photographers. Carl right, Freund but got that's, us on this. that's pretty thin. Like, I trying to remember. <laughs> but in any case... Um, the, 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 the line from Metropolis to Cool as Ice is, is shorter than you think. <laughs> I suppose that's true. But uh, in any case, Carl Freund, uh, who shot it, uh, Gunther Rietau uh, was the camera operator. Um, they invented a lot of techniques for this. There were like cameras on swings so that they could sort of uh, fly up in the actors' faces and fly back again mm-hmm. to create this sense of tension and movement. That's something I hardly ever see. That's like Sam Raimi's shit. Like almost no one uses that kind of technique anymore. Um, but uh, there's a lot of uh, matte paintings. There's a lot of there's a there's um oh what's it called? There's a certain like photographic uh, the Schuften process. Schuften. Schuften process, right. um, which uh, would eventually be replaced by like green screen technology, which was basically just a way of like using mirrors to put actors in a scene with visual effects. Um, so that was this was all very technically innovative. And when you watch the film, sometimes you're kind of marveling at how they did that. Sometimes it's very clear how they did that, but it's still very striking because it's Fritz Lang was very dedicated to finding incredible angles and the sense of scale here is something that's actually extra impressive when you realize that how many filmmakers rely on widescreen to create a sense of scale mm. uh this is 137 academy or i guess even 133 this yeah is, this is uh, basically it's practically silent, a square. yeah it's practically a square you don't get that sense of that that panoramic view of everything like wow look at how big it is so what long did and what a lot of other filmmakers did who wanted to create that sense of grandeur was he focused instead on height Mm. and so what you'll see is there's a lot of sort of progressive frames Mm. where there are like people like looking upward at something and their heads are like right at the bottom of the screen like an mst3k episode (laughs) and then there are like larger people in the foreground and then they're looking up at a giant statue and you just get this sense of overwhelming towering magnitude 
that's really incredible. It's yeah. a really incredible uh, uh, film to look at. Um, anyway, the plot of the film goes beyond that. So uh, what happens is this guy, uh, Freighter Freighterson, hmm. stupid name, <laughs> can't get past well, this. He, so. he, he uh, when Maria breaks into his little enclave, he falls in love with her immediately because yeah. she's uh she she's not dressed to the nines like mm. all of the women around him. She's dressed sort of in, in workers' clothes, mm. and she has a bunch of children with her. And she blows in his this, mind and in this very Christ-like way. Says, "Look at all of these people. Even though they're up here, they too are your siblings." Yeah, she's like teaching and, these kids. Yeah. They are your brothers. Mm. And then he and looks he, at he, her, yeah, he, and, he's, and he realizes that message goes both ways. These are my brothers. Those are also people. Mm. I'm people. He's never thought of it before. Yeah. yeah. So it's, 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 it's about the, the rich white guy realizing, wait a minute, there's class. It's problems? like, it's like Eric Trump finally saw the right liberal meme. <laughs> and he's just like, oh, oh my God, I get it now. I've been kind of selfish. And like, maybe the whole, this avarice isn't really doing anyone a lot oh of good. God. And he goes to his dad. the perfect metaphor. And he goes to his dad and says, dad, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I just realized mm. we've been oppressing oh. all of these people. And then all, of these workers and all these people who are like the victims of things like you know minimum wage that hasn't been updated in decades even though the cost of living is skyrocketed all and like they don't have health care and it's causing them to be destitute even though it should be a basic human right i only just realized that that is actually kind of fucked up and his dad just goes yeah yeah that's how we're rich that's that's how it works mm. and he's like so, isn't that bad so eh, uh, kind of but whatever it benefits us and he's like dad that's kind of a dick move and dad's just like yeah yeah, and then and in, he... in fact, uh, <laughs> while while Eric Trump goes underground looking for Maria, posing as a worker, and actually starts to do real labor. Yeah, which he does are, one day of real labor, one, realizes one... this is hard, and decides he's going to be revolutionary. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> one day. <laughs> this is hard. Now, t- to to his credit, it's a ten hour day with no break. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the, we're on metric time, which amuses the hell out of me. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen that except in an episode of The Simpsons. Mm, um, yeah. A, a, a day instead of being 12 hours is 10. Yeah. And, and uh, the clocks are 10 hours. And uh, it's and, this really incredible machine that he's working on where it's like this giant clock. And at the end of like where every number would be on a clock face, mm. uh, there's a light. And every time a light comes two, on, yeah, he two, has, two lights light up simultaneously. And it's his job to line up this human sized clock line up the hands next to those two lights yeah. wherever they appear. It's like he's doing semaphore with like 50 pound mm. weights for 10 hours. And of course the, the symbolism of Da Vinci's man is not lost. No, uh, it is yeah. not. But now it's like the, the labor grind version of Da Vinci's yeah. man. And then after his shift, everyone, instead well, of like, well, and, going, and, yeah. and, and the, one of my favorite shots of the movie is yeah. he sees this enormous machine. Of course they built this gigantic set yeah. and, uh, and people fall into it and they die. They're just grind up and ground up in the gears, but they can't yeah. stop the machine. So they just keep on it's going. It's like and they the just mangler. Die. Yeah. It's, uh, it, it's like, a, there's a chapter in uh, fast food nation mm. about how they have to just sort of keep machines running 24 hours a day. And then the janitors have to go in with all of these dangerous machines running. Yeah. And in order to clean them, they have to spray bleach everywhere, which causes causes clouds of bleach. So you're getting po- yeah. poison clouds in your eyes, so you can't see it. You're wearing goggles. Right. But, but you know, still. You, you can't see anything around machines that are designed to grind up flesh. Yeah. People have fallen into those things. Of course they have. Yeah. It's horrible. 
It is. It is yeah, horrible. That's, that's no the worst. The it. worst possible job. And yeah, so people like, fall into the gears, and uh, and and Eric Trump looks at it and says, <laughs> and sees this, and it, it transforms before it, before his eyes into this like Babylonian uh, evil deity, and he, he called Moloch. And it's you know, I love the the intertitle for Moloch because it's, it's animated, really stylized. Yeah, you know, and and he sees people sort of feeding themselves into the mouth of this gigantic monster, and, and he realizes awesome. that we're just sacrificing to a machine god, yeah. and he's like. That's probably not good. And then he sees everyone after their shift, instead of like going home, they actually go to one of Maria's meetings. And when she talks about the Tower of Babel, mm. and she talks about how what we really need is because we're all so separate. Mm. The rich don't care about us, and we have no connection to the rich. We need a mediator. Now, I think nowadays what we talk about is, you mean a union. A union. Which you should totally have and would fix at least some yeah, of these they, problems. They, it's it's not called a workers union, but that's essentially what it is. Somebody, yeah. uh, but the idea is that a workers union isn't just working for sort of like the nuts and bolts rights of a worker, but yeah. they actually are, are a little bit more of a philosopher yeah. who are preaching a, a benevolent philosophy saying not, you not only need to treat your workers well, but everyone needs to treat each other better. Yeah. Like this, listen, this Christian underpinning to like, it. like, yeah, like we're not only trying to make sure the workers succeed and that you fail and like fall into a grinder and die. Like we're mm. not trying to do that. We want to make sure everyone's getting what they need and want mm. out of this. And so, but to, exactly. Uh, but like, so to her, make, to make so the, anyway, my point mm. is she goes to this meeting mm. and she says the mediator between the head, the head and the hands must be the heart. And then Freighter Freighters and Eric Trump is just like me. I'm going to do that. I worked for a day. I know what I need to do. It's like when you go to Rocky Horror for the first time, you're a virgin and you yeah. go through the whole thing and you love it so much. You want to join the cast your first time. Yeah. And then you realize <laughs> that's actually difficult and time consuming and maybe not entirely my thing. And I have other things maybe. I might want to do on a Saturday once in a while. Come back, see how much hard work is involved. Yeah. If you actually really are into this scene. But uh, whatever, it's I, a I parable, he I, leaps into it. encourage everybody to go to Rocky Horror at oh. least a couple times. That is, if we ever get it again. True that. Uh, to make the plot even more uh, convoluted, <laughs> uh, Yo, the guy in charge of everything, has uh, an evil scientist in his employ, and that is Dr. Rotvang. Mm. And Dr. Rotvang has been working with robotics and cybernetics secretly in a secret lab somewhere in the city. Yeah. And and they also are aware of Maria and how she is essentially sowing discord by talking about unions. Yeah. She's she's Norma Ray. Yeah. And uh, so they have come up with this plot to build a robot and then use gigantic science fiction animation rings Mm -hmm. to transform the robot into a Maria clone. Yeah. And then replace Maria, but change her message from one of leading a workers union into leading a workers revolution, which is really easy to whip up because the workers are really pissed off and the people in charge know it. So also what Yo Franderson is thinking is if I whip them up into a revolution now before things get too far, they'll have a little riot Mm. and it'll be bad. But then I'm completely justified in using excessive force to stamp them down. And then we prevent a revolution. Problem is on top of that being evil, uh, uh, Rotvang fucking hates Yo Frederson because Yo Frederson <laughs> actually married Rotvang's daughter mm. and she died giving birth to Freighter, Eric Trump. So he's actually going to use this whole scheme to undermine all of Metropolis. So mm. what they do is Rotvang kidnaps Maria, who uh, meets Eric Trump, immediately falls in love with him, and then he fucks off. 
Um, Rockfang kidnaps Maria. They use the machine to turn uh, uh, the robot Hell, H-E-L, uh, into a Maria clone. And uh, Rockfang is going to use her not to incite a riot, but to destroy all the machinery of Metropolis, which will undermine all of civilization. And, and will in in will also in turn kill all of the workers. Yeah, and he's going to use it to kill all the workers, but also whip the uh, 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 the the bourgeois into a self destructive frenzy using hell and Maria's new body. You mean the proletariat? No, no, I'm talking about the rich because he oh, uses yeah. her uh, to whip up the, the oh, bourgeois yeah, yeah. To... into this sort of self destructive fervor in which of, they're all killing themselves. Yeah. yeah, they're all killing themselves because she's encouraging their hedonism. And it's all yeah, going to come a, to a big old head and the, all of Metropolis will destroy itself. And, and another one of my favorite sequences is when uh, Maria does her, her essentially it's her striptease. Uh-huh. She wears this really weird, and again, it's this weird sort of pagan imagery. She's wearing like long robes and this big headdress. Yeah. And she does, yeah, this sort of erotic dance. There's this wonderful, wonderful shot of like all of the men's eyes sort of cut together in mm. one frame. They're all just sort of staring at her and you can tell there's, just all of this lust and she's in control of all of it because she's a robot. Yeah. And, and, she, and, and she's and the way she's dancing is not at all erotic. It's actually really disturbing. I love this is this is why when I say Brigitte Helm gives uh, one of the great sci-fi performances. It's she's great as a Maria. Mm. She's wonderful and she's uh, hopeful and she's inspiring and she's romantic. But she also plays Hell the Robot. Uh, and who is vicious and evil? Yeah, vicious and evil. And it's worth noting that the concept of robots was pretty new. Now there mm. were automaton people, but they were all basically elaborate puppets. The idea of a self, like motivated, doesn't mm. have to have someone at the controls or inside yeah, of in it fact, or whatever. Um, the word robot was new. Uh, it invented it, in nineteen twenty one, nineteen twenty two, nineteen twenty. Uh, yeah. uh, around the early twenties, yeah. uh, there was a Polish play called Rossum's Universal Robots. R U R. You can look it up. Yeah, and that was the first use of the word robot. Yeah, and of course, the idea of inanimate objects that would gain sentience goes back at least as far as Greek myth, and of course, that there are elements of that in Frankenstein. So did, did I say it was Polish? It's Czech. Okay, I apologize. Yeah, okay, but uh, it goes back. You know. Hmm. Greek myth and the whole uh, uh, Pygmalion myth, everything to uh, you know the myth of the Golem, uh, or is it Golem? It's Golem. 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 I get confused because well, I, I was raised, Tolkien messed I, that up. I was me, raised but, with Golem and then yeah, apologies, yeah. Golem. Um, and of course, Frankenstein has elements of that. Pinocchio has elements of that. But the idea of we're going to build a machine that is capable of doing stuff on its own is pretty new, and I don't think that there is. Like, I, when you look at Brigitte Helm's performance as a robot, mm-hmm. she really didn't have a lot of precedent to go off of. It's not like, oh, how did other people play robots? That's not really a thing. <laughs> so she has this incredible performance as hell where she is mimicking human movement, but she is doing it in this really fascinating way where she is, she knows like all of like, uh, uh, the marks she's supposed to hit. You know, in order to look happy, my eyes should look like this. Mm-hmm. But she skips all the spots in the middle, and her eyes are sometimes operating independently of one another as Good. she's thinking. And her movements are not robotic because we think of robotic mm-hmm. as like doing the robot, this kind of slow thing. Mm-hmm. She will whip them into place as though this is they're supposed to be locked in here, mm-hmm. and getting there is all that matters. It doesn't matter 
There's like, no, yeah, there's no in-betweening. Yeah, there's no and, in-betweening. Yeah, but, that's a great yeah, way of putting it. Her during, frame rate is really low. <laughs> and during, but yeah, you're talking about her eyes during that weird dance sequence. There's mm-hmm. a, a really wonderful close-up of her face where she looks out at the audience with this sort of frozen rictus of, of lust yeah. on her face. And she winks somehow without moving anything in her face other than her eyelid. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's something she could do or if that was a special effect. It's her entire performance, especially mm-hmm. as hell feels like a special effect. And once she transforms into hell, you start really appreciating her work as Maria more often because her performance as Maria is actually really graceful mm-hmm. and very physical and almost balletic in the way that like when she, towards the end, when like she's running from a mob of people who are trying to kill her because they think she's the robot. Mm-hmm. Um, like she is just throwing her hands up in these gorgeous, like again, claws, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, just like these beautiful motions that mm-hmm. are just very sweeping, like a um, um, like a cape in the wind. But then hell is all very sharp and creepy, and I'm like, I think if we actually could like take her performance as hell mm. and like use CGI to make it look like an actual nuts and bolts robot, it might be one of the most impressive and scary robots ever put on camera. Like it's a really incredible. Mm. performance and there was nothing really like it before and she deserves a lot of credit for yeah. it um and, uh, but uh so maria i'm sorry uh, maria's been kidnapped hell is stirring the pot and uh, she's telling all of the workers that listen you've waited long enough for this mediator crap and, and f- go kill and, and eric trump meanwhile is up above trying to preach maria's word and is getting smacked down by everybody he talks to yep um, and, and losing all credibility and, and actually threatening the uh political strength of yo uh, hence putting, like, sort of exacerbating Rotwang's plan as well. Yeah. Uh, so, and Rotwang's Rot- plan... I kind of love these... Yeah. And this is something you'd only see in the silent film era. These big rolling tragedies where tragedies just sort of compile. They cascade. Yeah, yeah. and just think th- things that are, are unrelated, that where everything just sort of ends badly for everybody. I'm you trying don't to see think movies like, like that like anymore. Like, House of Sand and Fog was kind of like that. It was this huge... Mm incredibly tragic melodrama that I have very mixed feelings about because it's really overwrought, but it also works. Like it's, yeah, I feel like there's some like thinking of like killer Joe, just where everybody's behaving badly and one person, but even that's more intimate than this. This is sweeping. Yeah. yeah. Um, Because this is, this is apocalyptic. It is doing her like erotic dance and stirring up all of the bourgeoisie to the point where they cannot control their lust and they start murdering each other in a crowd just because they're so horny. (laughs) That right there, that is biblically. And I, I'm I'm not a fan of the term, but that is referring to the biblical whore of Babylon. Hmm. Um, so what we're doing here is we are seeing the book of revelation play out in what seems like a completely secular world. The only like, there's only two like senses of religion we get in the movie that aren't like freighters, like hallucinations. It's when Maria is giving speeches, uh, in, you know, the underground, you know, aqueducts. And we see, like, makeshift wooden crosses just, like, piled up against the walls. This is where religion has gone. This is Mm -hmm. where uh, uh, that sort of tenderness and morality has gone. And also, the end takes place at, like, a Victor Hugo church with, you know, a big old bell Mm -hmm. and gargoyles. But it's, like, the only example of old architecture that Metropolis seems to have. And... It's rather noteworthy that the whole thing ends there because it's ending with like a sort of a nod back to history as opposed to this future which is destroying itself and we have to look backwards in order mm. to find a place to go. So Hell whips up the workers to, and if these two, again, not just have a riot, 
but to destroy the machinery that's keeping the city running. And they're very eager to do so. And they jump in all of their elevators and they all leave their underground city and says, yes, we will destroy everything. Every man and woman will be up here destroying everything. And as the elevators go up, we realize they left all of their children behind. And then when they destroy the machines, the workers' city starts to flood. Mm. And they're all like literally like dancing like, yeah, we did it. We destroyed all the machines. And the one guy who was responsible for keeping the machine running, you left your kids down there and they're drowning. And they're like, Oh. We must kill Maria! <laughs> and they're like, damn it! It's like a Monty Python routine at this point. It's like, ah! Oh. You are the Messiah. I've known. I've followed a few. Uh, and Maria has escaped Rothvang, and she's actually in the, the worker's city as it is flooding, trying to rescue all of these children. And then Freighter manages to make it there as well. They manage to rescue all their kids in this giant, like, Poseidon adventure. As, like, as the whole sequence. set begins to flood it's and really everybody's around. Yeah, yeah. It's really incredible. And they save all the kids, but the you know the workers don't know that, and so they're trying to kill her. And there's this incredible scene where like they're running throughout all of Metropolis, chase. She's running. It's like it's like that scene in PCU where like that one guy is like <laughs> racing through the college, and he somehow managed to piss off literally everybody. So there's like two thousand people chasing after him at any given moment. But PCU was obviously very inspired by Metropolis. Um, and but what happens is while she is running from all the workers who are trying to kill her because. She killed all their kids, or so they think. Uh, Hell is leading all of the bourgeois in a riotous revelry, Mm. uh, which prevents them from doing anything to stop the destruction of Metropolis, and they happen to intersect, and then by sheer chance, the workers manage to grab the actual robot, and then when they put her on a pyre... (laughs) <laughs> and they use real flames and in fact Brigitte Helm's dress actually caught fire while they were doing this sequence I believe it uh, she ends up reverting back to her machine form and everyone's yeah, like flesh burns off yeah. and she turns back into a robot everyone's like the fuck <laughs> because they've never seen that before and it's really fucking weird and then it all ends uh, with a big fight with Rotwang uh, Rotwang sorry uh, on the top of a church, Rodvang falls to his death, and everything's going to be okay. And then it all ends with the leader of the workers and Freighter's dad. Uh, you know, it's like, well, we want to get back together, but it's socially awkward. And Maria's like, it's socially awkward. Quick, Freighter, this is what you were born for. And Freighter's like, come on. And then they shake hands and everything's fine. That's what he was born for, to go... Come on. Mm, why don't you do it? Come on. Yeah. Be a pal. It's it's too easy of an ending. Way too uh, easy. Yeah, the, the politics are a little too plain. And here's They're just naive. They're really fucking naive. We com- can all compared agree on to that. what we learned, and yeah, I, yeah even at, and as you said, you know, Fritz Lang, even Fritz Lang at the time thought they were a little naive. But I think it's a it seems deep when you realize that it's hidden within this gigantic spectacle movie. Yeah. Uh, it's it's like when uh, people talk about James Cameron's aliens and how it's actually about motherhood. It's like, well, no, we're here to see aliens, but the fact that there's motherhood in it makes it seem a lot more complex than it is. There's also there's uh, also an anti-capitalist matches in aliens, and of course it is also about the Vietnam War. All of that. Yeah, yeah. it's an allegory mm. for like three different things. But they cut mm. motherhood out of the theatrical cut. Like it's in there, but they most yeah, of like the real meat of it is in the director's cut. So the, that, that's yeah. what I don't think I've seen the full director's cut. Yeah. But, uh, it's uh, there's parts. You know, it's mostly better. All right. I think there's at least one segment that goes on like but, five ten minutes that we don't need. But it, but it's like 160 minutes, and I'm not sure I have the patience for that. It flows uh, really good. All right. It flows really good. Uh, but yeah, I, I think the political messages come out really, really strong. Science fiction is a wonderful venue to explore something like politics, so it's okay if you're doing something either, uh, you know, naive but optimistic, mm-hmm. or purely like 
blatantly symbolic when you're in a science fiction setting. And no one could accuse Metropolis of not being blatantly symbolic. <laughs> like, let's be yeah. fair. That's exactly what it is. I mean, and, and, you know, we're talking about Star Trek on a weekly basis on the critically acclaimed network. And that's that was Star Trek's bread and butter mm. was really obvious political mm. metaphors for the most part. Mm. Uh, Sometimes they didn't work. We watched uh, the episode of Private Little War, which was a big uh, metaphor for the Vietnam conflict. Yeah. And it's a big, thuddingly awkward episode with an ending that we argued about. Yeah, we actually Uh, completely disagreed about how the end... How how to interpret that ending. Yeah, which was a really interesting conversation because we both thought it was really cut and dry. And it turns out we totally looked at it as like an inkblot. (laughs) And we both had very different perspectives. And And, it was a really big conversation. And we put it out to the the listeners. And it turns out they also were a little split. Uh, Yeah, it was mostly... Not not, not 50-50, but yeah. Yeah, there was... it was not one of us was crazy. Like we were, we both had a point. Like mm. it was interesting. Uh, so I am willing to forgive uh, the me- melodrama and the obviousness. Mm-hmm. Also, melodrama plays better in silent cinema. That's the way a lot of silent cinema operated mm. in the late 1920s. This is 1927. This was kind of like 27, 28, and 29 were just the height of silent cinema mm-hmm. because uh, they were cinema was about to transition into sound. Uh, and filmmakers were just sort of reaching this fever pitch as what could be done with the art form at the time without sound. Uh, was the addition of sound a mistake? That's arguable. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> some people have so, said Some it. people have said so. You don't need sound. It's a visual medium, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what I find curious, and this is where I'm going to link it to Star Wars, is that George Lucas clearly watched metropolis every filmmaker watched metropolis yeah it's really influential everybody who's interested in science fiction has seen it uh anybody or should or yeah should any anybody who's you know filmmakers who you know were shortly after it came out all the way up to today have watched metropolis just for pointers as to how to shoot this sort of thing and i find it curious that george lucas is looking at something like metropolis and he's looking at maria and finding a very clear uh design for c3po they look really similar oh yeah uh, he's, and he's also, uh, you know, looking at it and finding design ideas for Coruscant for like these mm-hmm. big ideas uh, of cities. And by the time digital technology had evolved far enough, he could actually just digitally create an entire planet of city mm-hmm. uh, pretty convincingly. And one could also argue, I was just thinking about this. One could also argue that Naboo's culture mm-hmm. has some influences from Metropolis as well. And that you have the people on the surface who live in this opulent decadence and people literally under the surface mm. in the aquatic uh, yeah. uh, country of of uh, Gungan or right. Gunga City, um, and they like Obi Wan talks about how they're connected, but they never elaborate on that. They, they, He's probably one... going after a Metropolis kind of thing here. Uh, yeah, it, it kind of. It's so badly written that it doesn't yeah. read. It's but like yeah, it's, he it says pre flooded. Like it's... yeah, and he says you you live in a symbiotic circle. How? What do they do? Yeah. They're living completely separately from the other people who are literally on the other side of the planet. Yeah, what are they doing? But I think that's <laughs> I think that's what he was trying to evoke. May, maybe so. Yeah. And, yeah, and they have to drive, you know, swim through the planet core, which is liquid in this planet, so forget oh, about whatever. That's, I don't, I'm not going to fight him on they're, that. That's just stupid yeah, and in, fun. Instead of a molten core, it's a giant fish. Uh, <laughs> it's a little bizarre. Uh, but, you know, Star Wars has that fairy tale quality to yeah. it, so I, I, don't, I don't mind that so much. But again, I, and I've, I've made this criticism of George Lucas before, how he's going to a lot of these old uh, films and taking only visual cues yeah. and not bringing any kind of salient politics from these into his ideas for Star Wars. Now, the one the films that take the most direct influence from Metropolis mm-hmm. are the prequel films. Definitely. 
Uh, and so, you know, with Coruscant and you know, all of the yeah. robots. Yeah. And those are very political movies. It's about the building of an empire, right? Yeah, it's, it's about the fall of uh, a democracy. Yeah. It's about uh, how um, the hubris yeah. and, and isolation. It's about this one, yeah. one guy using all of these different players is manipulating everything so he can uh, deteriorate a Senate and put in, like, install himself as an emperor. Yeah, you could argue that the emperor is basically mm. a combination of Yofraderson and Rotvang because he mm. makes his machine person as well yeah. at the end and that's the creation of Darth Vader. But yeah, the the idea of using technology and political ideas to do that is something that seems to have been lost on George Lucas. Mm. He's not using politics, he's using uh like he's using Darth Vader. Like that's his Maria is Darth Vader. No, and, I, no, uh, I think it's fair to say that I know I would say Padme's is Maria. I think mm-hmm. Darth Vader is treated because Darth Vader is kind of of both worlds if you think about it. Darth Vader was raised as a slave mm-hmm. on Tatooine, who is, and then he's who is brought being, into being taught a philosophy of benevolence, and then was replaced. Quote replaced. Well, but don't be look at his whole journey yeah. though. He's he's raised as a slave on mm-hmm. Tatooine, then he is brought to the upper world, the the metropolis world of Coruscant, mm-hmm. where he is trained to be part of this different society, the kind of society where yeah, listen. We're all Jedi, and we're like in, live on this cool city planet, and we travel around the galaxy, you know, s- saving the day and righting wrongs. And uh, when we get to Tatooine, and we realize there's still slavery on this planet, and it's really fucked up. Uh, we'll save one of him if it suits our needs, but then we won't come back. Yeah, <laughs> it's really you know you realize that there is actually like the the and it's, it's about this, and I think it's it's clumsily done. But, you know, the Jedi the most have... frustrating thing about those movies. The Jedi have blinders on, and they're really missing a lot of things that are right in front of their noses, like the fact that the Emperor is evil and he's consolidating power because they're not really thinking... Like, oh, we're not going to connect with politics. And I'm like, but you are. You're a tool of the state. Mm. You're fighting the Clone War. I think it's interesting because we talked about... When we talked about... Um, well, here... When we talked about... Uh, uh, what was the what was the short film? I always get the number wrong. 50... 2817. 2187. 2187. Yeah. I don't know what was <laughs> We talked about 2187. We talked about how George Lucas's career basically boils down to cynicism about the future, uh, mm. uh, sort of optimism about the past, mm. and how the past is this halcyon era in which things seem simpler yeah. and probably were simpler in some regards, and the future, things are going to get so complicated and we're going to get so deep in the weeds that we'll destroy ourselves. Yeah. The original Star Wars trilogy, you know, there, there are definitely shades of complexity in there, but they're really straightforward. The, you it's know, about good and evil. It's about it's not good about, and evil, and there's fact, redemption there's, from that, and there are people who switch sides, but it's there's pretty n- straightforward. In fact, you, you might argue that uh, any kind of direct political allegories are only, uh, like, they're metaphors or they're mm-hmm. symbols. There's no actual politics, like, in the movie itself. Other than in space of, Nazis are bad. Like, yeah, that's there, kind there's, of as there's far space as space Nazis, go. and we understand that it's an emperor, but, he, yeah, he has this sort of fairy tale quality. It's not like he's... You know, signing papers and going to meetings. They never really get into the nuts and bolts of the mm. evil. It's just sort of generally understood. Yeah, and, so, and there are, and it evokes World War II mm. imagery without really getting into the politics of what led us to World War II my, or how World War II operated. Mm. My point is this: when we got to the prequels, he actually kind of married the two, and what he was doing was telling this sort of halcyon adventure story with a lot of like Flash Gordon storytelling structure mm. and simplicity. 
while also trying to evoke, and here's how civilization has ended before and may end again. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the reasons why I feel like the the prequels feel a little scattershot in some ways, because it's trying to be like do very different things at the same time. Yeah. And I think sometimes, uh, uh, I think it's one of the reasons why Revenge of the Sith arguably works best, is because that's it's, the one that really leans into the Metropolis shit. It is about the fall of civilization, whereas the other or, two and were trying actually, to... And we actually get to see the conclusion of that. It's exactly. Not weird whereas I feel like the first forth. two were trying to do both. And like, yeah. oh, here's how all fucked up Anakin is getting but also wacky robot machinery sequence and it's like we just he just killed a bunch of women and kids but we're doing the wacky Mm. robot machinery where C-3PO's head is on another body and making jokes Hmm. like it's a it's an awkward marriage of tone and premise but you're right they do get more political in the prequels uh, it gets more political because it is actually like literally about the senate and there's a Mm -hmm. line of dialogue this is how how freedom ends with great applause or or an empire I forgot what I think it's how democracy democracy ends with with, with thunderous thunderous applause uh, something like that and uh this was at the time of the Iraq war at least for the second and third one and Mm -hmm. uh the the second Iraq war really the second well yeah the the George W. Bush years uh, took uh, Phantom Menace took, yeah, was fa- before Phantom 9/11, Menace was ninety nine. Yeah, the, the other after, two yeah. were after nine eleven. So a lot of it was a reaction to that, and how we were seeing a lot of our uh, liberties being stripped away in the name of safety. So that's kind of uh, written into the blood of parts two and three. I think part yeah. two especially. Yeah, doesn't make the film necessarily very deep, but you can see like where George Lucas is kind of coming like from. He's interested. He's got ideas. They're my, in there. Yeah. They're just kind of clumsily presented. My my issue is that they're is a part we get to see like slaves in the star Wars universe, but we don't get to see the impoverished. Yeah. There's no idea of class difference in star Wars. It's everybody's either a rich politician or a slave. And maybe we get to Mm. see like, there's like traitors like on Tatooine, but the idea of the idea that the issues that we are facing and the issues that felled, uh, the Great Republic. Mm. Uh, class were, issues? The, yeah. yeah. The idea that those were class issues are at best minimally addressed through the veil of Anakin, yeah. who you know came from poverty and then became exposed to mm. uh, you know avarice and fell under the spell of someone who basically gave him what he was looking for. Yeah. And but that's still not really aside from some really awkwardly yeah. well, written monologues in like the second mm. film. That's not really addressed very well. And, and, and ultimately, fact, he decides he, to fall to the dark side just because he's worried his kids will die, and, and the, which I, is not a class issue. And, and another issue is, in fact, George Lucas wants to write around the class issue that would naturally be part of this. Yeah. There, there's a war going on, right, between machines and clones. These mm-hmm. are people who were... And these separatists. Spe- there are people who actually they claim they have legitimate grievances against the Republic. Mm-hmm. It's not just the robots. They're using robots to fight. But there are actually like different planets, and but we yeah. see that big like meeting with uh, Count Dooku and Attack of the Clones, where there are a bunch of different people hmm. from a bunch of different planets, and like we've seen the Nimoidians before, and we know that they're dicks. But like, are they? Maybe they're not all dicks. Maybe some hmm. of these people have a legitimate reason. But to my be point, this war. we don't. We'll never know. My point is, the people who are fighting this war aren't people. Uh, a, a, there have been a, like they've been growing a bunch of clones for the sake of fighting in a war, but mm-hmm. the clones uh, don't emerge as individuals. Well, They're literally clones, they, and they actually uh, do in this series. To be fair, over the okay. time, because the idea, but is not that, in, not in those movies. No, no, and also not in their construct. They were yeah. constructed to be basically chattel. Yeah. They were basically then to be manipulated playthings. Because even though. 
that like many of them developed like more of their own personality like the longer that they were alive because that's what happens mm-hmm. and that's what happened in the Clone Wars TV show at least as much as I saw of it um in the end the vast majority of them were still could still be basically turned into mindless killing machines by just saying a number at them yeah. you say order 66 and uh-huh. then they all just whatever they've gone through whatever relationships they've developed with the Jedi that they've been fighting with this whole time pew pew I feel nothing Mm. Yeah. And there are exceptions you're not, you're to that as we've seen in the animated now, series, but if, mostly that's what happened. If they had to enlist actual people and convince them to fight in the war, we'd see some actual human collateral mm-hmm. from for this big political revolution, and yeah. we'd see that the the working people are suffering. Mm-hmm. We'd, have, and we'd actually see a lot they more. Join up. They need yeah. to have a reason. We'd to see do a, so. a lot yeah. more raw consequences of a, a bitter rise of a fascistic empire right so what you're saying is that by making the clone wars about only having clones and robots do the majority of the fighting mm. we've managed to make a movie that has all of the gravitas and grandeur of war without any of the actual consequence consequence war, yeah. or political depth that war that, actually has which exactly. is true yeah. however i do think this is one of the things that makes the newer star wars films really interesting is that we do see more of these issues arise in later films, in particular, mm. The Last Jedi, when well, we go yeah. to Canto Bite, and that movie is actually basically that whole sequence is. Some people argue that it's not really important to the plot, and you could make that point, but it is incredibly important to expanding the world and making Star Wars a little more relevant by showing least, that class issues do exist. I, I was going to point that out, that yeah. the only time we ever talk about class in, like, directly in Star Wars isn't that there's poor people living on scraps in these planets and mm-hmm. how bad is that. That's that's only only ever used to illustrate <clears throat> how, uh, how bad the protagonist's life is at the beginning so yeah. they can have something to rise up above at the end. Basically, that's it's what not, Luke was all about. Yeah, we, we don't we don't see Ray and we don't see Luke as victims of this gigantic complex system where the impoverished are forced to do all the work. None of that's ever mentioned. I think it's a little it's, bit of that. There's a little bit of that, to be fair, in mm-hmm. Force Awakens where you see her do all of this work, scavenging or whatever, and they mm-hmm. only give her just enough to survive and keep scavenging. So that's mm-hmm. like a little bit in there, but not much. A, a little bit, but I think, again, yeah. I think that's only used to illustrate how desperate her personal situation is yeah. rather than speak to the economic injustice of the Star Wars universe at large. Yeah. The only time they ever do that directly is that Canto bite sequence in The Last Jedi. Yeah. The first time, and that was in 2017 that movie came out? Around there, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 2016, I think. 2016. Yeah. yeah. So it took like a long time for Star Wars to get to actual class. And I find that really, really bizarre. It was 2017, you're right. 2017, yeah. 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 Uh, It's really bizarre that one of the primary influencers of Star Wars... And most science fiction is this very brazen, open, melodramatic, obvious political allegory. Yeah. And George Lucas is looking at that and saying, I'm going to do that, but no politics. Yeah. It's frustrating. Well, and, 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 and it's interesting to see how sort of Rise of Skywalker ends up playing with that. Because when you look at how Rey starts out from nothing, and it seems like that's just going to be another, you know... Mm. Echo from the original Star Wars trilogy, where like she's kind of like Luke, she's on a she's on a desert planet, mm. and then you realize that she's you know when her it's revealed at the end of the Last Jedi that her parents were nobody. Mm. She is not exceptional. She isn't an example of exceptionalism. She is not a chosen one. Yeah, 
And for me, that's when it comes down to the idea that class actually is going to be part of this because we see her story and the story of like that young boy on Canto Bight who clearly has force powers mm-hmm. and is the is like hope for the future. Um, yeah. And you realize that and, cla- and the last scene of the entire Star Wars saga would have been, <laughs> but, would have been so perfect. Just I know, ended I know, right I know, there. Just ended right I, there. I, I know, but like the nothing idea, nothing unanswered. But that's that's something that raises the idea that mm. class is a relevant issue to a lot of people. But it's actually not going to stop people from achieving great things. It's not yeah, about yeah, yeah. it's not about who you're born to. It's not like you know, oh, who will be this great mediator, the chosen one we've all been waiting for to save us? It will, of course, be the son of the villain. <laughs> and but, but ironically, in the end of Rise of Skywalker, we find out, or not at the end, like in the middle, we find out that that's Ray. Ray is Freighter Freighterson. Yeah, Ray is the 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 child of the great and, villain who has been manipulating so, everything, and that she is the one who must hmm. fu- fix everything and find that balance—the balance of the Force, the balance of Metropolis. Which again, as we said, is naive. It's but, naive here too, and now it's it forced and awkward and doesn't fit anywhere. Well, it's forced and awkward because it changes. Ray's arc is different from Freighter Freighterson's. Yeah, Freighter Freighterson was ignorant at the start. He was just happy to be frolicking in a garden. He yeah. had no knowledge of the world. It's a very different. And it's vibe. about his enlightenment and how he became to came to understand things uh, as they actually operate and understand injustice for the yeah. first time. So he has an arc. Yeah, he, does. he, he changes. It's and simplistic, he, but it's an arc. Yeah. Uh, Ray didn't start in privilege. She started in complete poverty and just learning that she was the daughter of the villain mm-hmm. uh, gave her at the last minute something to fight against that she was already fighting against. Yeah. It only amplified the thing she was already walking toward. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with her arc. And one could also, if yep, she, now yeah. if she were raised by the emperor. Mm, see that would have been something and was and she was sort of like uh, say she was uh, like Captain Phasma Uh and she was in charge of like like actually murdering people and took great pleasure in her job Mm -hmm. and she was the one who had that sort of arc yeah uh, now that's the, the arc they tried to give to Finn, but uh, no, they, kind, think, they kind of pushed him aside a little bit. I think it's the arc bit. they tried to give to Kylo Ren because even though he was mm. raised by you know Han, Leia, and Luke, he ended up mm. finding new father figures in a new father figure in Snoke, who he ended up having to destroy, mm. and then he ended up falling under the thrall of Palpatine for a while before, in the end, mm. he was he found some. I found he found a little bit more redemption in Darth Vader because at least he did more than just throw a guy down a hole. <laughs> like I, I I buy his redemption a little bit more because I. Actually saw more like inner conflict from him throughout the entire like trilogy um but it's still doesn't quite work because ultimately he doesn't really seem to realize that like oppression and social inequality and mm-hmm. like all the genocide that the first order has been up to he doesn't really seem regretful about that so much as turning on his family and shit Mm. And that's not really the lesson that Raider Friderson learned because his Raider Friderson became socially conscious. And I don't, and I just feel like Kylo Ren's story feels more insular than that. Yeah. I still think it's pretty good. I think he's arguably the most interesting character in the new trilogy, but um, it, 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 it doesn't really fly. And in the end, what does, what does Ray do to accomplish things? Like Raider Friderson manages to become like a beacon of diplomacy. Whereas Ray rejects the bad guy and kills him by holding up two lightsabers. <laughs> yeah, and it's just, I know, right? It's just, it doesn't really mean much. Like uh. Luke defeating Vader and the Emperor at the end 
that wasn't just him fighting them until he won. That was fighting them and trying to demonstrate strength of character until he essentially shamed Darth Vader mm. into going back on the dark side and actually like rejoining the light side of the force too late to help the people of, you know, fucking, uh, uh, Leia's home planet or anything like that, or all the other people they murdered, but Alderaan, too too late, too late to stop that genocide, which he just sort of sat by and was just like, I I I remembered a star Wars thing. You did. Um, but like, it's too late for, for that. So I hesitate to call it redemption, but it makes Luke's victory that much stronger because he didn't just defeat the bad guy. He made one of the bad guys realize he was wrong. And that was really, really strong. And anyway, I think Rise of Skywalker like plays at that, but it never really accomplishes any of it. Yeah, and yeah. but you can see where the seeds of Metropolis kind of exist here. But Star Wars actually isn't the best framework for it because it's not really about what Metropolis is about. Metropolis no. is very directly about issues of social class and politics, and it's and, very, and it's very uh, open about what it's about. Yeah, and Star Wars tries to hide it behind a veneer of mm, like broad advent- entertainment adventure. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's basically Metropolis. Uh, it is a classic of science fiction. It is enormously influential beyond Star Wars. Um, and I think it's kind of one of those films that if you love cinema, you really should get around to. Some mm. people have issues with silent cinema. I understand it's a different kind of storytelling. Different it does acting, mean, different kind of photography. It, there's yeah. actually a really beautiful score for Metropolis that is available on the complete edition. Um, but it, you're not like necessarily like engaged in an audio sense the way you are in mm. a lot of non-silent movies so it may be a little odd and dreamlike but i it, the, the complete version flows the best the pacing's the best yeah. story is the most clear it's there's, there's really still uh, from what i understand there's still five minutes yeah. of this film missing somewhere there's big chunk like right in the middle of this movie where it says like oh and at this point yo yeah, frederson fights yeah. rotwang to the near death and i'm like boy that sounded like it would have been cool like <laughs> well, we could can't believe we, we lost that, that yeah, scene but that sucks yeah and in, in in the complete metropolis as it was released yeah there's little yeah. recaps of scenes that are yeah. missing but there's only so many and uh, it's pretty they, um, much fi- uh, I, like I wish, found now I, and i think there's even some stills aren't there where there they was. took like production stills and cut them into the movie just yeah. sort of fill some time yeah, that's that's not a lot of it, but there's a little bit, and they used to do that more. Uh, there's another version of Metropolis, which I grew up with, hmm. was is called um, Giorgio Moroder's Metropolis. Giorgio Moroder was, uh, I think he's still alive, uh, hmm. he's, a, he's a musician, he's probably best. Still alive. Um, check that. He's best known for doing like movie soundtracks, he's responsible for the soundtrack to Top Gun. Um, but he's a really talented musician in and of itself. And for whatever reason, he became really fascinated with the idea of... Yeah, he's, he's alive. He's 80. Yeah. Uh, he became really fascinated with the idea of doing a modern version of Metropolis. And what he did in the early 80s, I think it was the early, early 80s, um, he took Metropolis. It was about as complete as it could be at the time. It was, it was 84. Uh, yeah. The, the Marauder version came out. It was, it was not the complete version we have now, but we had a lot of it and he had to recreate a lot of it using stills that were available from the production. Mm. Um, and he did a lot of like tinting where you like the whole screen is like, instead of like black and white, it's like black and red or black and pink or black and blue. And uh, this is actually a very common practice in the silent era. So it's not really that heretical to do it. Mm. Um, and, on top of just letting the movie be the movie and it's wonderful, he had a brand new soundtrack with people like Queen and Pat Benatar and it's really cool. Like, it's not necessarily the movie as intended because obviously it's the 1980s kind of weird hybrid version, but 
it's really fun. It's really cool to put on at parties or whatever because it just feels like this kind of like weird kind of disco experience. And the the soundtrack is fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. And I, I do, if it's not the version to see. If you want to see Metropolis, the complete version is the version to see. But if you've already seen Metropolis or you just kind of want to see this kind of interesting oddity that plays really well but is its own separate thing, Marauder's Metropolis, which is available, there's a really good Blu-ray of it and I think it's streaming, uh, is definitely worth seeking out because it's really neat. And I rented that version when I was a kid, like all the time. We rented that like once a month. Really, I was, really familiar with Adam I was, and I was in love with Giorgio Moroder's Metropolis. It was a really formative experience for me. So even though it's again, it's kind of its own weird experimental thing, I do recommend it. I do mm. think it's neat. I I kind of wish more filmmakers would do that, or musicians. Mm or artists mm-hmm. would commission a re-edit like a drastic re-edit of mm. their favorite movies to sort of as long as it doesn't re- replace it i'm fine with that like you well, know, make not, it its own repl- project not, you know? yeah just a, a just a new cut and you know especially films that were like notoriously cut weird or had to be recut a lot like mm. the original star wars for instance that, when, yeah. when are we going to get a marauder version of star wars yeah you know you hear that radiohead's going to do an entire album that's supposed to be synced up to star wars yeah. Uh, I want to fucking listen to that right now. That sounds amazing. Because <laughs> we we had um, you know the the Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon Wizard of Oz, which which they, is a coincidence. But they the insist way. it was a coincidence. But you watch it and it really doesn't feel like it. Like yeah. it's really on the nose. Like uh, the, it the, ends, sca- it the ends, scarecrow call, falls on some grass and you hear the lunatic is on the grass. The last, turtle comes out of the basket and you hear free. Yes. Well, then there's there's the, the whole the album ends with a heartbeat and the album stops syncing up with the movie when Dorothy is listening to the Tin Man's Heart. <laughs> like it's it's if that's a coincidence it's one of the most incredible like winning the lottery coincidences like in history but mm. it's a thing and I got you can to, sync uh, it up and it's interesting I, I went to a Flaming Lips concert at mm. Hollywood Forever where uh, they were performing Dark Side of the Moon in its entirety there you go and uh, and of course it's Flaming Lips so there's a lot of confetti and gigantic beach balls and what have you and, yeah. and Wayne Coyne is up there being Wayne Coyne and uh, he said during the concert well this one syncs up with the Wizard of Oz really well. So here are some songs from the Wizard of Oz as well. So it actually <laughs> mixed fun. in if I only had a brain, like Flaming Lips performing that in Hollywood Forever well, as well. And, and also reminds me of the new uh, Beyonce concept album slash movie, mm. uh, Black, Black is King, is King yeah. which is basically Beyonce taking the general vibe and ideas from The Lion King and turning it into its own musical experience and its own visual experience with actual closer influences from African cultures, like a wide variety of African cultures. Um, and that's fascinating too. So yeah, I'd, I'd be down for more stuff like that. But anyways, that version is available as well and I do recommend it, but the complete version is where it's at. Yeah. Um, so that is it for uh, episode zero this week. Sorry we missed last week because we mentioned in other podcasts we were having uh, tech issues, uh, but it's all cleared up now. We will be back next week with a film that kind of breaks the rules. Kind of... Because here's the deal. Here's the deal. Hmm. Star Wars takes its influence from a lot of things. However, some of those things didn't become movies until after Star Wars. That's right. So, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at a film based on a property that highly influenced Star Wars. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at that film and how Star Wars, even though it came after the original story, ended up making this newer movie feel less relevant and more like a ripoff of Star Wars. And we get to see how Star Wars has affected the history of popular culture in both directions. Yep. 
which is really kind of interesting. So we're going to be talking about the Disney film John Carter, uh, which was a huge epic bomb at the box office. But um, I'll tell you this right now. It's not bad. It's okay. It's not It's not amazing. It's not as good as Star Wars, but it's also not a bad movie, and it's a fun watch. And if you've ever thought to yourself, like, oh, I've heard that was terrible. I'm not going to see it. It's worth checking out. Hmm. So you can have a chance to do it before just, next week, and we'll talk about it next week on the show. Just because a movie bombs doesn't mean it's bad. Just because a movie is successful doesn't mean it's good. Yep, and I will, I will stand up for this one right now. Not a timeless classic, but a fun sci-fi fantasy romp. It's got some stuff that doesn't work, but it mostly works, and it is a good watch. So you and, can totally check that out. And boy, how do those visuals? Because they dumped a lot of money onto that thing. Yeah, it's a cool-looking film. So anyway, we'll talk about how John Carter influenced Star Wars, and how Star Wars then went on to influence John Carter. And uh, that will be next week on Episode Zero. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, if you want to uh, uh, write in and talk about anything we talked about on this episode or any of other podcasts or anything else, really... Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email address. We might read your letter on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail, which is another podcast here at our network. Uh, we also are on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. If you want to hear us talk about more stuff, in addition to the various podcasts we have with the Critically Acclaimed Network proper, which you're listening to right now, we also have tons of exclusive content at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We have podcasts dedicated to Star Trek, podcasts dedicated to Firefly, podcasts dedicated to Disney uh, uh, movies and, and such that are not on Disney+, Plus, even though they should be. Uh, we have stuff dedicated to the Academy Awards. Uh, we have commentary tracks. We're knee-deep in the middle of doing a commentary track for all the original Evil Dead movies. Uh, and tons of other stuff besides Whitney has just dropped a new radio drama. I have indeed. Written, directed, edited by Whitney Seibold, starring a lot of cool people that we know. Whitney, tell them a little bit about it before uh, you can head out. It's actually, uh, I dug up an old script that I wrote way back in like 2005 oh. and, and actually won a, a good deal of money from. Oh. I, I submitted it to an audio drama festival. I won first prize and they never produced it. And just a couple of years ago, I thought, whatever happened to that script I wrote? I contacted the festival. I said, yeah, you can have it. You can right. have it back. It's fine. It's yeah. like, oh, so you gave me a bunch of money and I get to make it. So I ended up making it. It sounds like something someone would write in their early 20s. <laughs> Uh, but you know, it's like really flip and kind of clerksy. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's about, uh, a, a, an old man and two of his friends who are digging through a dead companion's apartment, mm. like just sort of sorting out her, the things she's left behind and they find an old video cassette. They pop it into a VCR and find that she was clairvoyant and could record her half of a conversation in the past. Oh, okay. And so they con converse with this videotape. That's fun. And she incites them to avenge her death. And, uh, and that's, that's the, that's the show. Uh, it's about 38 minutes long. It's a perk for the $20 level patrons. Yeah. If you're a $20 patron, uh, you don't need anything else. You will just get it. You and just in fact, get it. I'm, in fact, I'm putting it out. If it's not out by the time this episode premieres, it will be out within 24 hours. So yeah, it'll, it'll be, uh, it'll be up ready to go. And, uh, if you want to buy a copy, if you're not a $20 uh, member, then you can just contact me directly via any of the social medias. I'm on the, the Twitters and the Facebooks and, mm -hmm. and the Instagrams. And uh, yeah, if you can, we can arrange something. You can PayPal me or Venmo me and I can, e I can email you an MP3. If you can find him. <laughs> then, then, you can, you can, <laughs> then you can buy. This is a great way to make money, isn't it? <laughs> to hide out on social media and wait for people to come to me. <laughs> 
Um, in any case, that's really, really cool. And again, it'll be available for our top tier patrons. And if any of our other people, uh, fans, patrons, listeners, people who just like audio dramas, just want it, contact Whitney directly. Uh, he is very available mm. on socials. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, for being part of this fun experiment. We'll be back next week with John Carter. And may the force be etc. <laughs>